This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson not with us through the week. I'm Jonathan Farrow, the FTSE. The only major market to close in positive territory on the continent today and only just the FTSE 100 up by 0.06% in the United States. Really choppy session through the first half of the session. The S&P 500 up by four-tenths of 1% as we enter the second half of the trading day this Tuesday. The Nasdaq just slightly negative. IT underperforming to start the week and a little bit of negative follow-through into the Tuesday session. The Nasdaq off by 0.15%. A ton of earnings as we kick things off big time for Q2 results here in the United States. A little bit more on that in just a moment. Just going through a series of press releases from some big companies here in America over the last couple of hours, and three quotes have really jumped out to me. I'll start with one from J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, who said the following, This is not a normal recession. The recessionary part of this you're going to see down the road. You will see the effect of this recession. You're just not going to see it right away because of all the stimulus. This was the take from the Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Scharf, who said, our view of the length and severity of the economic downturn has deteriorated considerably from the assumptions used last quarter. And we have to turn from banks to airlines as well, because it was a whole host of companies offering some pretty uncertain guidance going forward. This from the Delta CEO, Ed Bastian, who said, demand growth has largely stalled. It was growing at a pretty nice clip through June. The virus, unfortunately, was also growing. If you were looking for guidance, you're not getting positive guidance from some of the big companies on this side of the Atlantic. Let's touch base with Michael Regan, shall we? Senior editor and lead blogger for Markets Live. Michael, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Your take on the earnings that we've got stateside through this Tuesday. Well, yeah, Chad, I agree completely that the banks are not really giving a rosy outlook for the for the near future for the second half of the year. I mean, just the number that popped out at me is uh, between J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo. They set aside about $28 billion for uh, loan loss provisions in the quarter. I mean, that is a massive number, compares only really to the financial crisis of 2008, and sort of shows you exactly the environment they're girding for, which is – you know, as Jamie Diamond said, it, the down, the initial downturn of the economy is one thing, but it, it sort of, you know, has a ripple effect that takes a while to feed through the system. I, I was looking at Chapter 11 bankruptcies in the last financial crisis. They didn't reach a peak until the middle of 2009. So, in other words, at the end of the recession, when it looked like things were, were beginning to pick up is when sort of the, the credit situation was the absolute worst as far as Chapter 11 filing. So, you know, for the financial system as a whole, um, we're, we're not out of the woods. There's a lot left, a lot of shoes left to drop from uh, this recession for sure. 
What I thought was really interesting about what Jamie Dimon has got to say is something I was already thinking about this morning, that what we've seen for a lot of these banks is they have really benefited from consumers who have still been able to get access to capital, even though they might be out of a job. With the checks that were sent out to Americans several months ago, Mike, on top of the enhanced unemployment benefits as well. Is that what Jamie Dimon is getting at here, that we've seen this huge offset to a shock to income, that we haven't quite felt the pain in the way that he thinks we might in the coming months? Yeah, I think that safety net from the government was uh, obviously hugely important and sort of masked how serious the economic damage was as far as unemployment and and sort of the lack of confidence and the the lack of of sort of the instinct to spend like like people normally do. Um, That said, you know, we're staring at the uh, expiration of that supplemental on insurance uh, payments from the federal government, $600 a week. That's set to expire at the end of this month. And there's quite a few other stimulus measures that will expire after that, you know, from uh, the prohibition on the foreclosure of homes uh, owned by people with uh, sort of U.S. government-backed mortgages, um, and on and on and on. You know, the the mortgage forbearance program itself lasts a little bit longer. Um, But a lot of this stuff is starting to roll off of the the books as far as uh, programs that were meant to help uh, the U.S. consumer. And there's just not a lot of time left in the summer for the Senate and the House to really hammer out uh, sort of the next stage. I think the stock market had priced in the notion that there would be another batch of stimulus uh, without really getting into details what it would be. You know, there was this sort of bipartisanship uh, at the onset of this crisis that allowed the uh, stimulus measures that we've seen to be to be passed rather dramatically fast compared to how slow Washington, D.C. normally works. Um, I'm not sure how easy it's going to be this time, considering the election is coming up in November. Um, and there appears to be, from all the reporting I'm reading out of D.C., a lot of disagreement on what this next batch of uh, stimulus will look like for uh, consumers and well, Mike, corporations. So, let's just build on that. Is the election in November a risk or an incentive to actually get something done for both sides? Do you really want to be seen as the party going into this election that refused more aid for the American economy at a time like this? Well, it's, it's an interesting where the battle lines are being drawn. I remember uh, the Democrats in the House did come up with another stimulus plan that I think it was like $3 trillion worth, which was instantly rejected by uh, the Republicans in the Senate. Now they seem to be drawing a line at a, a $1 trillion uh, cap. Uh, it sounds like the White House doesn't want anything uh, that comes to be more than a trillion dollars. Perhaps, you know, uh, just from the, the, the sake of appearances, that will make it sound like the economy is not in such great shape. So, um, you know, Democrats want to do more than that. So there is an agreement that more needs to be done. Um, the question is, uh, will the posturing uh, on either side who will win sort of that, that gamemanship and that political messaging about what is actually needed and, and what they can agree on? Um, I mean, I imagine when pushed against the wall, something will be uh, agreed upon uh, that will sort of prop up the markets. But, I, I, you know, the question is, can we see some turbulence, some volatility in the markets between now and that point? You know, will it actually be the market sort of forcing the politicians' hands to come together uh, when it looks like, uh, you know, this rebound that we've seen in, in markets is starting to crack. 
Mike, I know it's a really important busy day for you, busy week for you as well with the earnings on deck and several things happening over in Europe too. Got to let you go. Michael Regan there. Great to catch up with you, Mike. My best to you and to yours and the whole of the team at Bloomberg doing some great work shifting through these numbers and really trying to get to the issues at hand. Our senior editor and lead blogger for Markets Live. Coming up next on this program, Phil Orlando of Federated Hermes on JP Morgan's record second quarter. Some really good numbers on the market side of the business. Some big headwinds on the other side of the business. That'll be next right here on Bloomberg Radio. is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Big week for bank earnings, big week for earnings all round here in the United States. The biggest US bank, JP Morgan, delivering record trading revenue. Happy to offset some of the pain elsewhere in the consumer lending division. Take a listen to what Phil Orlando of Federated Hermes had to say. Two great data points. The the small business optimism index blew out at 100.6, and J.P. Morgan's numbers, stronger revenue, stronger earnings, despite having a larger loan loss provision. So I'd put that one in the win column. Phil, there's a lot going on here about bulls and bears, and the constant message I've received wrapped around bank earnings is nobody loves this market. It's incredible the lack of bullish tone given the bounce and given within the pandemic. How unloved is this market? I think it's the most unloved rally in the history of the stock market. And, and if you look at where we are, you've got, you know, sort of a near-term, long-term tug of war. We think the longer-term picture is quite bright in terms of getting our hands around the trajectory of illnesses and some pharmaceutical responses. But certainly in the near term, you've had a 47% rally, you know, in the last three or four months. Um, and we're bracing for a 45% decline in S&P earnings overall. So we actually took some chips off the table a month ago uh, and reduced our equity overweight, which had grown to about five and a quarter percent. We took that number down to a 2% overweight, in part going into the earnings season because we thought that second quarter GDP and corporate earnings were going to be a challenge. Uh, but, you know, J.P. Morgan and I think FedEx the other day have gotten us off on uh, on a good first foot. All right. So based on what you're seeing uh, initially on some of these earnings, are you willing to get more bear- uh, more bullish again and put more money to work, particularly in the banking sector? Well, we, we've seen two companies. Um, let's see a few more. Um, you look at the overall earnings season. As I mentioned, consensus is looking for a 45 percent year over year decline. Our three favorite categories over the last three or four months have been technology, health care and financials. Uh, two of those categories of work. Financials have, have underperformed radically. And the expectation for earnings is that they're going to be down 55 yeah. percent. Uh, 
compared to the broad. So the numbers, you know, while we've got a good number here, as you mentioned a moment ago, let's wait until we see Wells Fargo and Citibank and a couple of the other companies. There may be some disappointments down the down the line. Phil, quite clearly, we've got some short-term positives for the financials in America, the capital markets business. We've got some long-term negatives, the rate side of the business, the consumer part of the business as well. You've got to believe that's going to turn around or at least get incrementally better in the quarters to come. Do you believe it will, Phil? No, absolutely. Uh, our view is that th- this recession that started in February um, ended uh, by the middle of the year. Now, the NBER hasn't dated yet. It might be May. It might be June. But we're expecting a, a pretty strong snapback in the second half of the year. We are not in the camp that the recession is going to bleed into the second half of the year. I look, Phil Orlando, at the market up some 40 percent, Amazon up 90 percent. I know you were an initial advi- uh, investor in Tesla. So, Phil Orlando, you're feeling good today. But there's so many lagging sectors, including banking. What will be the catalyst to get these lagging sectors, including James Diamond's J.P. Morgan, to go, go, go? So as you look at the earnings season as a whole, the, the, the companies, the sectors that will do well are going to be tech, financial, uh, tech, healthcare, and the more defensive categories. The ones that you're mentioning, the more economically sensitive categories, including financials, are, are going to have horrific numbers, some of them down more than 100%. Phil Orlando there, Chief Equity Market Strategist of Federated Hermes on some of the difficulties that some of these names are going to have in the coming month as we get the report on a really, really difficult Q2 in America. Up next on this program, the focus will shift to Europe. Just a massive week ahead. The ECB decision this coming Thursday. Fiscal authorities, European leaders meeting going into the weekend. We get the view from Andrew Balls of PIMCO, the CIO of Global Fixed Income. We'll hear from him next right here. On Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Earlier on, ahead of a huge European summit going into the weekend, we caught up with Andrew Balls of PIMCO, the CIO of Global Fixed Income. Take a listen to what he had to say. Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's um, certainly a step in the right direction. And if you just look at this, this crisis, um, we're going through the COVID crisis, uh, the combination of the ECB action and then... Uh, this cross-border fiscal support uh, is is pretty good. Uh, I don't think it's, um, um, you know, the the game-changer that someone, uh, some people have claimed. I don't think it um, is the thin end of the wedge and we'll have euro bonds um, soon. So um, join in a several issuance um, soon. But I think it's a a big step in the, the right direction. And the fact you're not having... A, um, a big uh, morality play and uh, course for austerity and that kind of thing is very helpful. And, and, you know, for countries like Italy or Spain or others, given the nature of the, the Eurozone um, and the difficulty of having one central bank and all these different, different fiscal authorities, it's, it's certainly, you know, very positive 
uh, as a step, and that's been reflected in asset prices. Andrew, how do you characterise it then? Because there are some people that view this almost exclusively as a mechanism to erode redenomination risk, and others who think that actually it can help engineer a real recovery in the Eurozone, on the continent, for the Union. Do you think it's one or the other, or both? Well, so it's quite big. It's about depending on you know what the number is, if it's 750 billion, it's about almost five and a half percent of GDP. So it's quite hard. Uh, sorry, quite big. Uh, I think the important thing, from my point of view, is is this this issue of not getting into a run on the the sovereigns. So the concerns with Europe compared with you know the UK or the US or anywhere else where you've got your own central bank is you could have a run on the individual sovereigns. You know, everyone apart from Germany probably. Um, if you have to have a big increase in fiscal issuance. And so in that context, I think um, this, this, you know, we have to see what the details are, but in broad terms, a plan along the, side, the, the lines being discussed, uh, together with the ECB action, um, has, has, has um, guarded against, you know, pricing in default risk or redenomination risk. Uh, so this is a big pos positive. And, they, you know, these runs, they can become self-fulfilling if there's a loss of confidence. And so, you know, it's nice to be able to say on this occasion, uh, both on the fiscal and the monetary side, you know, they're, they're doing a you know, reasonably, reasonably uh, pretty good job. So, Andrew, help me with capital allocation decisions, investment decisions that you're looking at right now. The straightforward way to play this would just be through the sovereign in the periphery. Perhaps the more levered way would be to get some exposure to the financials, the banks in those peripheral countries. Andrew, how would you play this? I mean, I agree with that. Um, I think that the, the great benefit of the, the sovereigns in Europe is they're, they're very liquid. So Italy's highly liquid compared with corporate credit, say, uh, and it's a compressible spread. I mean, there's a reason why we've had a, uh, a, a rise in risk premium in Italy even before COVID with the political risk. But this is a compressible spread uh, if, if things continue moving in the, in the right direction. I, I agree also with the point that... Um, uh, periphery banks, I mean, some of the subordinated debt um, in these countries um, is also a reasonable way to be positioned. You need less you know, cash in uh, uh, per unit of risk. And so depending on the nature of the strategy, uh, both uh, can be quite favorable. And I, I tend to think if you look at Italy sovereign, given the, um, the liquidity, given the amount you can trade, uh, it looks pretty attractive versus, say, corporate credit in, in Europe. Andrew, any particular part of the curve that you would favour? Um, well, I mean, the 10-year part of the curve um, where, the, where you can use futures is, um, is where the liquidity uh, tends to be. Um, you know, I, you, you can make different arguments for different parts of the curve, but just to keep it simple, I think 10-year Italy looks reasonable. And, you know, there's risk. Um, Europe uh, tends to be, you know, one step forward, two steps back, uh, but hopefully this time two steps forward and, you know, one step back. So I'm sure we'll, we'll have some drama around um, uh, agreeing the fiscal plan. But as long as it's broadly in line with the, the very good summary earlier from your, your, your reporter, um, I think that, that you know, reinforces this um, uh, greater stability we're seeing in Europe in the face of a massive shock uh, compared with... Um, uh, what we might have hoped for. So, you know, the, 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 the positive Mario Draghi legacy is continuing, you might say, and uh, some good progress as well on the fiscal side. Andrew, before we let you go, let's finish with a simple one as well. Is there a currency call embedded in the optimism around Europe? What are you expecting? On the currency, I don't... As a firm, we don't have a very strong view on, on uh, the euro versus the 
the dollar. But at the margin, I think the euro looks um, reasonably attractive um, from a valuation perspective. Um, but also, uh, if the extent that we continue to see, hopefully, um, um, recovery from uh, the COVID shock, you know, even with some of the, the, the worst signs we're seeing at the moment in the U.S., to the extent globally we see uh, and a recovery, global recovery, then you would expect in that environment the the euro could do well, quite well versus the, the U.S. dollar. So not a table-pounding view, but um, it looks reasonable to be overweight the uh, the euro or this, you know, some other G10 currencies you might think about versus the dollar. Andrew Balls there of PIMCO, the CIO of Global Fixed Income, going into a really key back end of the week this week with the ECB on deck this coming Thursday. ECB President Christine Lagarde expected to keep monetary policy unchanged. The news conference will actually be fascinating for one reason and one reason alone. How much pressure will she try to put on fiscal authorities, i.e. leadership in Europe, ahead of that huge summit that takes place through the weekend? Will we finally make a little bit of a breakthrough, at least some progress coming out the other side of this weekend on what a fiscal package can look like and what proportion of that package will actually be grants as opposed to loans? Can we establish some kind of fiscal transfer to help the hard-hit countries on the periphery like Italy and generate that transformational thing that we're all waiting to see, viewing Europe differently. The big monetary policy package that President Mario Draghi delivered years and years ago, the whatever-it-takes moment on top of that, really how to erode redenomination risk. Can we achieve the same thing through the fiscal channel in the next couple of weeks? Remains to be seen this weekend, a big moment for the continent once again. From New York for the City of London, more still to come on the bank earnings. Lana Nguyen of Bloomberg will be joining us. That's next on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAV Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson not with us. This week, he's working on a different shift, so he's left me on my own. I'm Jonathan Ferro. At the close today, the FTSE 100 positive by 0.06%. The sole gainer out of all the major benchmarks in Europe for the continent, the FTSE, the only one in positive territory and only just. Steep losses on the DAX, the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany, down 8 tenths of a 1%. And in the United States, just a really choppy session. Had said that at the start of the hour. I'll say it again now. It's worth repeating. We have been all over the place. The S&P positive 4 tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq was deeply negative. It now comes back and it's negative just 0.06%. Interesting day with a lot of financial earnings to get through. We'll do that in just a moment. Later in the week, the attention will shift to big tech with Netflix, then Amazon, then Apple to close out the month of July. So a big month ahead of us with a lot on Europe in between. Equally lucky to get Lana Nguyen to drop by and catch up with us sometimes as well. And she does that today off the back of some financial earnings. Wells Fargo very much in focus. That stock down, down hard, off by 4.89%. This was the quote that I think everyone picked up on from Wells Fargo CEO Charlie Scharf, Lana. Our view of the length and severity of the economic downturn has deteriorated considerably from the assumptions used last quarter and I guess that is why this dividend gets cut and cut a whole lot more than many people expected. 
Bingo, Jonathan. That is exactly right. I think, uh, you know, the banks all kind of chimed in and, and echoed that sentiment today, saying that the outlook is even worse than, than we expected. And uh, that's significant because we were already expecting the banks to sort of manage expectations this quarter. Everyone had already said that 2Q was going to be the most ugly and, and brutal. And then to get the guidance that comes even further on the downside of that um, it is the concern. So, you know, the banks have stashed away $28 billion so far um, for, for bad loans, and that doesn't include Bank of America, which is the second Unreal. largest bank and will report on Thursday. So we are seeing some very, very big numbers for loan loss provisions right now, which is not a good sign. Can you help us understand just exactly what is going on? I thought Q1 was it, the kitchen sink, and Q2 feels like it's even worse looking out. What's going on, Lanan? I think Q1 was the kitchen sink in terms of panic and bad sentiment, and obviously the stock market reacted to that. But Q2 is the first quarter where we see full data. We see an entire quarter's worth of activities. We can see exactly how the um, pandemic is playing out. Remember Q1, you know, pandemic only really started in the final month of that quarter, and so there wasn't a full picture, whereas now we have a fuller picture. We have more economic data, more, um, you know, GDP and unemployment data to kind of uh, base this this uh, viewpoint on so the banks are coming from a much more informed position now and so if they're guiding to the downside based on that information i it, it doesn't look good for the year the key metric for brian moynihan and bank of america coming up later this week what are you looking for lana I'm looking for more of the same, Jonathan, to be honest. Um, I think the consumer divisions have all done pretty poorly this week, and the uh, Wall Street divisions have done really, really well. Um, trading has been very good across the street, but that has not been enough to sort of offset this negative tone that we're seeing from the consumers because eventually, you know, you can have a couple of, uh, you know, blockbuster quarters on the trading desk, uh, but if the whole economy starts to sour, then um, that, that's eventually going to trickle through to trading as well. So. I think we're going to see more of the same from the other banks that are reporting this week. Goldman and, and Morgan Stanley may do a bit better because they lean harder on the Wall Street side of the bank. But yeah. Bank of America is not immune to the same factors that the other consumer banks have, uh, have flagged today. Earnings from Bank of America coming up this Thursday, I believe, together with Morgan Stanley. Tomorrow, we'll hear from Goldman Sachs. Lennon, always fortunate to get your thoughts on this program. Thanks for giving us some of your precious time. We appreciate it. It's valuable. Lennon, you in there of Bloomberg on the latest financial results. Much more still to come on this program. Reaction to the earnings that we're getting this morning and looking out through the rest of this week as well. From New York for the City of London, thank you for choosing Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable. is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jonathan Farrow. We're not with Guy Johnson today. He will be back later on in the month as we get you prepared for earnings season this week and through the rest of this month the financials kick things off with jp morgan a little bit earlier we'll have big tech starting with netflix later this week looking out for amazon next week then the week after that the back end of this month you'll hear from apple as well just a really big moment for this market and we're all looking 
for guidance, some guidance about the future and what the future holds. We caught up with Kevin Caron of Washington Crossing Advisors. He's a senior portfolio manager and co-founder of the firm, much less constructive than most people we catch up with. Very long gold, quite short equities. Take a listen to what he had to say. Well, maybe a little bit of that, but you also have a market that's trading at about 150% of GDP, just the U.S. equity market cap relative to the underlying economy. And then don't, don't also discount the fact that when you look at uh, earnings yields, forward-looking earnings yields for the S&P, those numbers, that yield is essentially at a record low, as, it, as is bond yield. So it creates a very challenging environment for anybody managing a multi-asset portfolio. But stocks are uh, maybe churning a little bit trying to look for direction, looking for the narrative, but not necessarily, has not necessarily bought into a bear case yet. Kevin, these are mild moves, and I want to be very clear about that. We're just seeing moves of a couple of tenths of 1% here and there in this equity market at the moment. There was a fear sparked by one day's price action, in fact, one half of a day's price action, about big tech breaking down. We see the smallest of follow-through into this morning. Kevin, what's your take on that dynamic? Well, the, t the tech trade is as much about safety as it was about growth throughout the pandemic. The, 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 the issue for us has been the rise in debt globally, or specifically within the United States, getting to about 360% of GDP. We're concerned about debt, and that's something that technology companies really don't have. So if you're concerned about companies uh, getting through a tough time, it, it, tech, which is usually seen as a risky high flyer, here actually ended up being something of a safety play plus growth to boot. But there are limits, as you pointed out, to valuations. And we have seen now maybe market that's pushing up against uh, not really wanting to go further as the forward returns look weaker for tech. Well, Kevin, you've talked about the quality factor in all of this and that strong balance sheet starting to do well again. Don't some of these big tech names fall into that bucket? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. They, have, they typically have lots of cash flow and very little debt in the, in the mix. What we've seen since 2013 is that the return to the quality factor, and I think Bloomberg has a very good index that tests and tracks the, the return just to quality as measured, in our view, by balance sheet uh, uh, solvency, low debt. What we've seen is that tech doesn't have any of the problems that either the energy sector does or, let's say, the financial sector. So when investors get scared about the potential for defaults, where do they run? They run to the things that they can count on to get through, and that would include the likes of technology, which clearly have extremely good balance sheets. Kevin, I want to get to your big call, and that's gold. Why so constructive? Well, it was about this time last year, maybe mid-August, where we went to an overweight in gold. Essentially, what we see are several different exogenous events now unfolding. Last year, the thing that we were concerned about was rising tension regarding trade, which led us, coupled with the fact that gold really had gone nowhere for a while, to become more constructive. And then as we've come through to this year, we've added to that uh, exogenous factor trade, of course, the coronavirus and the pandemic. But underneath all of this is a bigger thematic about the rise of debt. And we used to have a situation where debt was very low relative to the total amount of our economy. Uh, 30 years ago, it was about one and a half times GDP. And now it's risen total debt, private and public, to about 360 percent of GDP, which means lower growth going for forward less flexibility, and we don't have anywhere near the number of AAA-rated 
credits out there as we used to. So we're just concerned at Washington Crossing that at some point there's going to be a, 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 a reckoning, and we want to make sure that we own companies that have very low debt in the balance sheets. Kevin Cowan there of Washington Crossing Advisors. Up next, George Rusnak of Wells Fargo. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson not with us this week. I believe he might be out next week as well. He's taken a little break from the programme. He'll be back with us soon towards the end of the month. The FTSE closing positive in today's session up by 0.06%. The only major index on the continent to close in positive territory and only just. In the United States, in the second half of the session, we pick up a little bit on the S&P 500, up around about one half of 1%. Earlier on today, we caught up with George Rusnak of Wells Fargo, the head of global fixed income, and talked to him about the possibility that 10-year Treasury yields could come down towards the policy rate. Take a listen to what he had to say. It's feasible, John. Uh, We don't think necessarily that's going to happen. That's not our base case scenario. It's feasible, though. And certainly what's happening here domestically is we're catching up to international, what we're seeing overseas in Europe and Japan. And that's That's actually not a good thing for us. So we actually like the fact that the yield curve has actually widened a little bit and more specifically has steepened a little bit. That's something that's a healthy thing for the economy. That is part of our base case forecast that continues. And again, though, I think the key here is that it's going to be gradual. And I think the other key of why that's potentially going to happen, John, is the idea of the issuance that's coming out. That was well absorbed last week, last last week's issuance. But going forward, it remains to be seen if that's going to happen. And the Fed's actually going to have to step in here from a quantitative easing perspective, to pick up on that, to stave off any kind of rate tantrum that you could get if you don't see if you don't see them step in. George, typically when benchmark government yields are this low, that is negative for the economy. Certainly we see a lot of uh, dark clouds out there for the economic recovery, and yet a lot of people going further into risk with a preference even increasingly for high yield over investment grade. Why is this a good time to take credit risk at a time of so much skepticism about the recovery being expressed in government debt markets? It's a great question, Lisa, and we're actually in that camp as well, believe it or not. We've been stepping into high yield a little bit. We're neutral on it overall right now. We're looking for opportunities to take on credit risk, and the reason why is right now you're actually getting compensated to take that risk. So in the past, you had such tight spreads, there were no opportunities to do that. Even if the fall rates pick up just a little bit here, you're getting compensated. Six and a half percent type yields and high yield, you're looking at a 580 type of spread. Historically, that's a good opportunity to get into that Even if it seems like a challenging time to get into it, we think over the long haul, those returns will offset any kind of volatility that you're going to see, any kind of defaults that you're going to see. We think it's a good opportunity. Investment-grade corporates, high-yield corporates, preferreds, step into that risk. We think from an income perspective, there's just such a dearth of income out there that you're going to see a lot of demand coming into that, and that's going to support those levels despite some of the challenges that they might see financially. The spread, you're saying, sufficient to absorb the bankruptcies and the losses that are expected. Right now, we're seeing the highest default rate among U.S. high-yield debt in 10 years, with it expected to go even higher. What kind of default rate is your analysis pricing in to make the 5.8 percentage point uh, yield cushion worth it? Right now, default rates are roughly between 5 and 8%. Even if you go up to that 8% level, we still think it makes sense to stay within high yield. Right now, you have to leg in. You have to be in there over the long term, and you're getting compensated. Look, if you look at 
where else you go in the market. And this is a challenge that every client is facing right now. Pre-COVID, for fixed income, you could count on getting two things. You could count on getting good income and an offset to your risk portfolio. Going forward, you're going to have to choose one or the other. You're going to have to choose either the income component, but you're not going to get the risk offset, or you're going to have to choose the risk offset, which is treasuries, agencies, asset-backed mortgages, but you're not going to get the income. We actually think going for the income right here is making sense. We think that actually more and more investors are going to be doing that and will support the high-yield market. George, the backdrop here is a new statistic, and Greg Vallier published it today, but many others have talked about it as well. It's all a lot of bond analysis against what appears to be $4 trillion of national debt. That's the new statistic, not $2 trillion, not $3 trillion, $444 trillion. What do you say to Wells Fargo clients who say, wait a minute, there's $4 trillion out there. That's a number we've never perceived. It's scary, Tom. The amount of debt that we're taking on is very significant. The amount of stimulus that you're seeing in the marketplace is something that we haven't really seen before. The 2008 crisis, you saw roughly $340 trillion in in fiscal stimulus over a uh, two-year time frame. You're going to see $2 trillion over 180-day period in this, so six times as much in stimulus. And you're right, that's a huge debt burden, and that's going to cause challenges for us for time to come. But the reality is we need it. We need it right now. When you stop the economy, when you slow it down as significantly as you do, and you have the pandemic, this is the time to be adding the fiscal stimulus. So we're doing the right thing, both on the fiscal side and the monetary side. It's scary over the long term, but for the short term, we really need that to jumpstart the economy And over the long term, we're going to have to work for ways to pay that down. Well, over a long term, I mean, can we do this with stability? I mean, not only stability in the bond world, your world, but also Scott Wren's world, the equity world as well. Do you see this as a stable process or are we going to have some um, volatility out there? Yeah, we do think more of the volatility. Again, uh, resilience is one of the key themes that we've talked about. Yeah, that's what we've talked about over both um, over our mid-year and the idea that you know, yes, there's a path back, but that path might be quite a bumpy one. And so you're going to see that within the stock market. Obviously, though, we do still see sort of a neutral positioning. We're slightly favored towards equities. We do think there's some good growth out there. Yeah. And we're roughly forecasting about a 3% growth between now and year end. George, I've got to wrap up this conversation with a question that basically addressed the only thing that I think people like Lisa Bramvitz, Michael McKee and Molly Smith would be following, which is waste management. 2024 debt bought by the Federal Reserve, $3 million worth, at about 105 cents on the dollar. It's just been redeemed at 101 cents. That's a loss for the Federal Reserve. Do central bank losses matter? I think right now in the short term, they need to support stability. They need to support liquidity within the marketplace. And they're going to have some losses, unfortunately. Over the long term, I think they'll be in good shape. But I think you're right. Over the short term, there's going to be some bumpiness there, John. And they're going to have to absorb that in order to get back to a more liquid, well-operating well market. And quite frankly, John, they've done a good job over the short term. Yeah. And we think over the long term, things will pan out fine. George Rusnak there of Wells Fargo joining us on this bond market and reflecting on a little bit of an interesting time for the Federal Reserve, to say the least, over the last year or so and beyond. From New York today, hello to you all. Great to be with you through the week, a big week ahead. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.